Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jed Brewer. Daddy needs a new Porsche. Come on. Jed, you, you said that in a way that implies you already have a Porsche. It's just too old for your liking. Is that, is that the current state of affairs? <laughs> Daddy needs a new Porsche or any Porsche. She currently has zero Porsche, so... <laughs> So any any Porsche would be a net increase in Porsche, but oh. but I mean if if the fates are listening, new would be preferred. I'll settle for certified pre-owned. I'm not greedy, okay, but new would be preferred. Sure, sure. It's a German car, but there are maintenance issues, so we prefer to go. <laughs> yeah, that's the word says you have not because you ask not, and uh, some well, people I'm take asking. that to mean specificity, and Jed has taken that to a logical conclusion. I would say. <laughs> Joining us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee, a man whose uh, German sports car updates I am not currently uh, set up on, so hopefully he'll share, is Lee Younger. Wow. Uh, I've been in a couple of Porsches before. The other thing I thought is, the I, I know I've, I've heard enough from you guys to know that, you know, it starts snowing where you live in like roughly October and it stops in like roughly April. And the roughly idea is an excellent adjective to use there, Lee, because yep. rough it is indeed. Well, the idea of having such a precision automobile in such inhospitable climbs seems like a bad idea. It has risks. You really (laughs) don't want to keep summer tires on. I can't (laughs) emphasize this enough. Do not drive a sports car with summer tires in the winter. I'm saying that for a friend. Now, some of you who live in climates where people were meant to live may think, summer tires, winter tires, what's that? You just need tires to go on the road. No. Nope. No, it turns out when, you, uh, when you're driving on a sheet of ice covered by slush for three <laughs> months straight, uh, traction is at a premium. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also, as a side note, like, I mean, I know that the following is not historically like, you know, your legit sports car design. But something with all-wheel drive is a really good idea if you're going to live in a frozen hellscape. Like you should, you should just lean into that. that that's I wish how that it was, is. I wish that was the commercial for the new Subaru <laughs> in in like Elgin, Indiana, or in Elgin, Illinois. It's like <laughs> if you're going to live in a frozen hellscape, you really should have all-wheel drive. Yeah, the you, new Subaru really Forester. <laughs> Hi, it's November, and until March, every parking lot in the greater Chicagoland area will be covered with a fine, icy sludge that will spin (laughs) out every time you hit. You're going to want that new Subaru Crosstrek. (laughs) It's not a sports car, but you'll be able to navigate most side roads. (laughs) Not all, but most. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's, that's really true. That's really true. <coughs> yes, one might even say that the I, the ability, the concept of trying to drive a uh, precision-engineered rear-wheel drive German sports car in the frozen hellscape would constitute a type of emergency. Oh, wow. Would you say that to make that decision would be a bit of a gamble? Why, indeed, I would. And Ah. that's the type of gamble that might result in a a bunch of people driving by gawking at your Porsche in a snowbank, real thing I've witnessed here (laughs) around the streets of Chicago. Um, People, you know, the winter is long and cold and people must warm themselves with the schadenfreude of people who drive a nicer car than them being stuck on the side of the road. And that will happen. Yeah. But there's other type of gambling. There's not just uh, existential kind of karmic gambling in that way there's actual monetary gambling and if you have watched any sporting events in the last year or so you may notice that it's literally everywhere it is every ad is a draft kings or a, a sports book or if you listen to a sports some sports podcasts sponsored by uh you know bet smart or whatever you can kick it all in everybody's got a, a code you may think but you know sports gambling Tales old as time. That's going to happen. Well, so sports gambling certainly happens. And one thing that has happened recently is that there have been, uh, you got your DraftKings and your BetUS and whatever have kind of started naming, getting naming rights to stadiums, even on college campuses. 
And that spread even more. We look to the to New York Times that points out that uh, Michigan State University uh, was offered a million dollars a year from Caesars to create a a program to promote gambling at the university. A similar deal was struck in 2021 uh, at Louisiana State University, better known as LSU, better known saying many things in an accent that I don't think I can do because it is offensive, even though Cajuns are white people. I don't think we're allowed to do the, uh, the jokey accent, so I'm going to go ahead and move on. <laughs> so the university sent an email encouraging recipients, including students who were under 21 and couldn't legally gamble, to place your first bet and earn your first bonus. The University of Colorado Boulder in 2020 accepted $1.6 million to promote sports gambling on campus. A betting company sweetened the deal by offering the school, this is real, an extra $30 every time someone downloaded the company's app and inputted a promotional code. Aren't you gambling enough by simply going to a four-year university, giving all that money, uh, and, and the idea being when you get out, you'll be able to find a job with that piece of paper? Oh, <laughs> shots fired. Oh, Social commentary. Well done. And maybe a bit close to the surface by the only one of, yeah. who, only one of us who is a parent <laughs> with one child currently in college and two headed that way. Yeah. <laughs> we very aware of the gamble of higher education. So, um, you know, there's sports. There's now gambling where you would expect it. Uh, more uh, states and cities have legalized it. There's supposedly a casino coming to downtown Chicago in the next a couple years, and man, is that the one thing that could make River North a worse place to go? We're just going to go ahead and do that. <laughs> you thought there weren't enough people driving in from the western suburbs, just kind of clogging up the sidewalks and loudly talking about this is why they don't like coming into the city in River North. They're now going to be coming to do that, but also full of shrimp buffet, having lost their money at the craps table. <laughs> sure, that'll go great. <laughs> But for your your DraftKings, your BetUSs, your Caesars, your Bally's, all these companies are clearly looking for the next uh, frontier where they can slam in some gambling that hasn't been before. And gentlemen, I propose a solution of church gambling sponsorships. Whoa! Oh. Church gambling. Now, I think we can think through what this might have uh, specifically. Obviously, you can do the same things, you know. Th- these announcements brought to you by BetUS. Enter the promo code First Baptist Church to get thirty dollars off your first bet. Yeah, so we yeah, can certainly yeah. do that. You know, you could. I, I know there's a lot of churches who will do like a ceremony, kind of recognizing high school seniors who have been in the youth group who are graduating. You know, instead of giving them maybe whatever they do, some places do you know gift card or. I know for many years Lee has like given music that he's written that kids have really uh, treasured and enjoyed. You could give them their first betting promo code. yep yep good but i'm saying you gentlemen with two questions one is what are the ways can we can we slide this in and the other is let's say we're we're advising an elder board a a pastor who's in the pulpit you're gonna have to message this yeah because it's a bit of a Mm. it's a bit of a turn now you can go with the with the standard reverend reverend lovejoy marge once the government says it's no it's not illegal it's no longer immoral (laughs) <laughs> um, so that's going to get a lot of good cover, but I think there's going to have to be some, some sermon themes, some, uh, some, some subtle messaging to slide people into making those wagers uh, yeah, that we may yeah. have spoke ill of in the past. Where might we go with that? Well, I, here's my first thought, just because I, I think it's an easy way to get people, you know, kind of in the door, metaphorically speaking, and that is a a merging of the offertory, the offering, and lotto tickets. Okay, so oh. <laughs> we have the the offering brought to you by Caesar's Palace, and you you buy a scratcher, and you buy it for the amount that you intended to give anyway, maybe a little bit more, but every so often you get a few dollars back, right? So just like all proceeds of the lotto, you know, in theory uh, go to education. At least that was true in Florida growing up. I'm sure it's not true at all, but that's what they said, right? Well, Here, that depends on who you let define proceeds. Well, that's a very good point. Here, all proceeds go to the church, but periodically you get a couple dollars back from Caesar's Casino, right? I mean, like, 
that's got to boost participation in the offering. This is all I'm saying, man. Who, who doesn't enjoy the, the sporty thrill of a scratch off? <laughs> uh, also, you have to go. Don't you have to go with the tagline? All right. It's offering time brought to you by Caesar's Palace. Time to render unto Caesar. Oh, wow, <laughs> dude. Yes. Yes. And a, official um, official offertory song of the offering brought to you by Caesar's Palace, Render Unto Caesar, is the mashup between um, everyone's favorite, uh, uh, Chris Tomlin, and, of course, uh, Kenny Rogers, which now goes, he knows when you should hold him. He knows <laughs> when you should fold him. He knows when you should walk away, and he knows when you should run. That's right. I, I don't know if we should go if the new title is The Offerer or The Giver, but I, I, I think we've got something here. The cheerful wow. gambler. <laughs> there, there it is. There it is. I love the idea of you're going into a into a church and you know you're not just going to visit and to you know hear what kind of you know praise and worship we've got going on here or the or the you know the the sermon and that kind of thing. But you're also like you're also as you step into this church, you're going to make your way over to the book to the bookkeeper um, bookmaker, and you're going to just kind of look down the lines of things that may or may not happen during the service today. Almost like a, almost like a better's bingo card. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like which kid is going to melt down in junior church the fastest? Well, we've got like a, you know, you know, we, we've got a uh, little Ralphie T is at minus seven versus, you know, m- minus little Jamie or whatever. And uh, h- how many times is the pastor going to mis- mention, you know, uh, social justice today versus, you know, gun rights or something like that. And you've got these, you've just got these different lines throughout the possibility, you know, possible things that could happen in any given service. And all of a sudden, I mean, I think the idea of people falling asleep during the sermon or something like that, all that stuff goes way down when you got skin in the game. Oh, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Look, if you hit the trifecta on junior church meltdown, you can walk away with some serious cash on Sunday morning. Okay. That's just a fact. Now, speaking of people falling asleep, I think there is a certainly bets to be made on what's going on on stage. You know, how yep. many bridges in the praise and worship song? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. How many key changes? Yeah. Yeah. How many stories during the sermon that pastor doesn't realize no one else has context or interest in as he's on his third fishing story or whatever. But I think yep. there's also a, a rich vein of audience based uh, prop bets. And certainly, uh, which church dad is going to fall asleep first and loudest. Yeah. Um, I think there could be a whole dad subset, certainly loudest sneeze <laughs> during the sermon. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Which, which, uh, 30 something year old, um, young married lady is going to get on Facebook marketplace first or Wayfair during the <laughs> sermon. <laughs> These are all great. They also lead to, I think, what would be another uh, just exceptional layer of intrigue, which is then we're going to get our first church gambling uh, fixing scandal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. You know, the the junior church leader seems to be a kind of, he gave little Timmy his snack last, even though he was first in line. Did he have money on the meltdown pool? He totally threw the match. Yeah. yeah, who's, who's yeah. going to get a black sock scandal? Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, when the when the worship song goes for the third chorus, will the sound guy have put money on that and just start fading things out so it sounds like something's gone wrong? We have to end the song here. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, you know, I think speaking of kind of the, the junior church element, right? Like, I mean, there are folks, and it's not really my place to comment, but there, there are folks who have offered that, you know, stuff like a, a Chuck E. Cheese where you're, you know, there's games and then there's tokens and you trade in tokens for prizes that maybe that's training kids to gamble later in life. And maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I don't, I don't really know. But what we can do is we can do exactly that at children's church. We can, we can get those kids on a pre gambling slide. We, we can give tickets for all kinds of things church that bucks. you can sh- church bucks. This is what I'm talking about. You can earn church bucks that then you could trade them in for snacks. You could trade them in for prizes. You could uh, you trade them in for all kinds of things, including, and I just want to put this out there, church coin. It sounds like commissary. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. A, a, a mix between Chuck E. Cheese and commissary, a thing that is <laughs> tr- 
truly a mind-bending combination of influences. And, and I yeah. know I passed over where the amazing place Jet ended that on by by bringing up commissary. It had to be done, but I think You're we good. need to circle back and and talk about church coin because when that bubble pops, yeah, well, well, look. yeah, Jed comparing uh, crypto to gambling, I don't I don't see it personally. <laughs> <laughs> look here, it's very different. I want to be clear about about church coin. Okay, so they have the blockchain, we have the bagot chain. That's how it works <laughs> with church coin. Okay, and um, you know. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's for, uh, think of it this way. You know how you're that dude in church that's really super into all the Calvinist theologians and you just get it better than everybody else, probably way better than pastor does. You just, you get it and you understand it on a deeper level. Church coins for you, baby. You should buy in right now. It's just like that. It's the financial version of Calvinism. It's you getting it in a way that everybody else doesn't go ahead. Take out that second mortgage. Buy some church coin. We're ready. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And I think Lee and I were both dumbstruck for a second because that sounds like a real thing that will be coming at some point. And even if it's not a real marketing strategy, it would be a very effective one. <laughs> yeah, my problem, my problem on the emergency section of this show, as ever, after more than 10 years of doing this with you guys, is whenever we come up with something that's so mind-bendingly stupid, that no one could ever do that. The church always surprises us by going ahead and doing exactly that thing in some form or fashion. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I think in some ways what we're doing here is kind of reversing that trend best we can because church gambling is just uh prosperity gospel, which yeah. as we pointed out on the show before uh, has become essentially the dominant uh, mode of Christianity, certainly in these United States. Uh, it's kind of wormed its way into everything. But the idea of, you know, you show up, you are faithful, you do enough Jesus, you'll get material rewards. Like, mm, you kind of have to work pretty hard to not find that in in, in a lot of churches. Uh, mainline denominations, uh, you know, go to the Christian bookstore, the Christian stuff on Amazon, you're going to find a version of that. I mean, Dave Ramsey's a version of that. A lot of the, the uh, you know, Jed made the kind of the Theo bro jokes. A lot of that stuff is just, if you read the right books and kind of believe the right things, uh, you'll get awesome rewards in a lottery type way. What we're saying is let's add some dice to that. Oh yeah. Let's make it interesting. <laughs> let's put this, you know, out front and at least make it entertaining. And I really liked the point Lee made of, you know, church visiting would become a whole different thing because now not only, yes, do you have like, is this a stand sit kneel church? Is this a responsive reading church? Are we, you know, uh, hymns or contemporary music? Now you have what kind of what kind of stuff do they have going on in the uh, casino room? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> our yeah. last church was a big poker church, and you guys seem to be leaning roulette, which I'm not saying I don't like. I'm just saying it's not what I'm used to from the way I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing like backsliders back blackjack. Oh, <laughs> oh. Well, oh, this go- also opens up the idea of adding church guilt to casino games. Oh, they're like, mm, 13, I'm going to stay. Seems like you're wavering in your faith there. <laughs> God doesn't, God doesn't rely on the odds. Oh, why don't you, wow. why don't you go and take a hit. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, you're, you're kind of answering the thing I was wondering about, which is, you know, like casinos, if you're, if you're really up, you're doing really well. Right. I mean, like they start comping you a bunch of stuff, you know, it's free sure. drinks, you know, free hotel room and blah, blah, blah. Cause they want you to to stay, keep playing until you lose. That's yeah, you know, that's how this works. So with church gambling, in what way are we comping people? In what way, when they're really really up, how how are we incentivizing them to keep on playing till we make our money back? I feel like you're just tempting me to say indulgences, but I feel like we accidentally <laughs> invent indulgences a lot in the emergency segments. Yeah, I think there's certainly um, getting out of volunteer stuff. You know, there's sign up for, because my understanding is, you know, if you're a casino, you get a certain, if you go enough, spend enough money, you might get a gold level membership or something and you get a, an up, a room upgrade or whatever. So, you know, we need everyone to, uh, you can, gold level members will not be on the uh, church volunteer email list for up to six months. Uh, Maybe you get to pick what the sermon's about. (laughs) 
That's uh, pretty slick. Evans. Certainly, um, well, we've we've had many stories about people trying this. Uh, I don't know if we want to do a preferred seating VIP section. That seems to have not worked out for uh, yeah. in some other church contexts. Who've literally done that? Yeah. But oh, I think, dude, I d- go for it, Jed. I do. I just very briefly, you know, like in casinos, right? They, they tend to have like a table in like a room where it's like, this is our high stakes table. Yeah. Right. It's, and it's labeled off and it's like a minimum buy-in of whatever, but like, you know, a thousand or 2000 or 5,000 at church, you can have the high faith table. Oh, <laughs> it's the exact same thing. Just different nomenclature. You're talking about a high roller Sunday school group. Yeah. This is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. How many people have you healed, Walter? <laughs> <laughs> you've got you've got to stake at least five thousand church bucks to be at the high faith table. Wow! There you go, and you you could get them by serving meals to the homeless or visiting people at the jail. That you know, you'll get sure. a couple of church bucks for that, and you could take those church bucks down the gaming table and see if you can turn that into a bronze level membership. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there it is. There it is. Well, I think in our in our own unique way that we have, we uh, simultaneously made church uh, more enjoyable and also much much worse. You're uh, welcome. A vision yeah. for a vision for a, f- a future, maybe not the one we want, but uh, almost certainly one we're headed towards. Church <laughs> brought to you by a gambling institution because they're going to own all the stuff pretty soon, apparently. With that, we'll move on to our first question. We have some real great questions to uh, jump into here. Our first one comes in and says, when someone reappears after a scandal and there's a backlash, it seems like people talk about how there is unforgiveness or lack of grace because people are mad. If someone behaved in a way that hurt someone else, <coughs> can I even forgive them? Am I under some requirement to forgive public figures because I am Christian? I, a great question. Um, there's a number of instances that I was trying to think about what may have prompted this question, and I... Uh, stopped thinking about that when I came up to the half dozen mark of things I thought this could have yeah. been between uh, church, celebrity, sports, all sorts of things happening recently. But I think this is a very interesting pattern that our question asker has uh, kind of picked out here of this idea, particularly when someone is uh, openly, performatively, visibly, whatever you want to call it, Christian. There's a lot of, well, yes, I did that awful thing. But now I'm back because I want to be back, and eh, it's kind of being mean to Jesus if you don't forgive me, meaning that I'm allowed to have just as much prestige and money and position as I had before. So um, definitely, I think, a sharp thing for someone to pick up on. And Lee, where would we go about just kind of addressing and dismantling this for ourselves? Yeah, it's a really cool question. It's It's a pertinent question because, as Matt's saying, I mean, this is a thing that keeps happening. We keep seeing this. You know, there are people that speak for our faith and they, and then they wind up being total jerks in some way. And then they come back and they say they're sorry or whatever. And they, and people try to paper mache their reputation or their image or whatever. Let me ask you a question. And this is an important question. It's not just an important question for, for what you're addressing here, but for all kinds of things that are in your face a lot because of the way media works right now, what do you think you really owe any of these public figures? That's a really good question for you to think about. What do I owe any of these people? Um, You have the right to pay attention to public figures. You can follow people on social media profiles. You can, you can follow their antics or the, the art that they make or the, you know, the shows that they're in or the, or the articles that they write or whatever those things are, or you can not pay attention at all. The thing that I want to suggest to you is you don't know a a public Christian figure, anything you don't, you don't have to be their PR agent. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to rehabilitate their reputation. And here's something even cooler than that. You don't even have to have an opinion. Like you can be completely ambivalent about is so-and-so this figure good or bad, um, positive or negative, uh, for the, the church or the, or the culture or the whatever. You just don't have to care. And that's a thing that I feel like I, I feel like with the weight of advertising and social media and the way the world is right now, that's a thing that we don't often feel like we are allowed to have some agency in. But I want to officially hand you some agency in this. 
you get to not care. You get to not care if somebody has made it back into the whatever or if uh, somebody handed somebody a microphone or whatever. You can be completely ambivalent about this. And this this is not something that makes you unchristian. You by the way, and you can be stronger than ambivalent. You can you can be out on somebody. You can be done. You can you can say no, I'm 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 kind of I'm I'm kind of done with that person. I I'm I don't pay attention to their stuff. I don't read their books. I don't listen to their music. I don't I don't pay attention to their articles or their tweets or whatever the thing is. I, I've unfollowed everything. You can do all of that stuff. Um there's a one of the things about public trust is public trust is a lot like private trust. And what I what I mean in bringing that up is that there is a gigantic difference between forgiveness and trust. Yep. It's one of the things that um for a large part Christian culture has done a really terrible job of teaching people, but it's an important thing that we need to talk about, which is that as as if you are going to be a person who believes in and follows the teachings of Jesus, it's very important that you not be a person who carries around bitterness, like where you have enmity with people, where you want to get them back and you want to exact revenge and all that kind of stuff. That's where unfor- that's what unforgiveness does to the human heart. It sets your mind and your heart on kind of an obs- kind of like an obsessive need for exacting revenge and justice. Um, it's very clear with in, in Scripture, if you're going to be a person that follows Jesus, that we need to leave that to the Lord. We need to cut off whatever it is that we have between us and the Lord of like, I want to exact revenge on this person, or I want to take it out on this person, or whatever that thing is. We need to to cut that loose, cut that free, so that as far as I'm concerned, between me and God, I do not need to get this person back or exact revenge or anything like that. That's really what the kind of forgiveness that we're talking about in this kind of situation between you and a person of, of, you know, some kind of public figure. It's like somebody does something. I don't need to exact revenge. I don't need to take anything out on them. I don't need to personally, uh, you know, go after them seeing justice or whatever the thing is. Now, that's a completely different thing than giving somebody, extending somebody my trust. Like in a relationship, if somebody hurt me to a certain degree, I can forgive them in the sense that I'm not going to get them back or seek revenge on them. I've forgiven them, but I'm not going to put myself in a position where we're in the kind of relationship where they could hurt me again. They have not earned my trust, and therefore we're, I'm out. Um, we're, we're not, um, we're not hanging out. We're not talking. I'm not putting myself in a vulnerable position where I could be the victim of again, of a person who has not earned my trust. Public trust works like private trust. So you do not as a Christian have to extend some kind of blanket thing over a person of like, well, they said they're sorry. So we all have to keep reading the articles or keep buying the music or keep purchasing the books or keep quoting the sermons or whatever. You do not at all. You don't have to do any of that at all. I think your personal goal with forgiveness is, I don't want bitterness, revenge, and all of those kinds of yucky things to build up in my mind and heart over somebody else's nonsense and misbehavior. So I'll cut all of that stuff out between me and the Lord, but that doesn't mean that person has earned my trust. Private trust doesn't work like that, and public trust doesn't work like that, and you don't owe a public figure anything. It's a fantastic place to start that off. That's all great stuff. And Jed, I think Lee is exactly right in saying that we do have to understand this in the context of a relationship we have with a public figure, which for the most part is probably not much. But he also mentioned yep. that there are going to be some, uh, as a consumer, as someone who has time and attention and money to uh, give to things, and certainly one of the things that goes on in a lot of these image rehabilitations is the idea that to deny this person your time, money, attention, uh, respect, whatever, uh, vocally or even passively is a type of unforgiveness as our question asker talks about. So how do we go about thinking about this in the context of that kind of odd consumer relationship we do have with people who are public figures? It's a great question, and I super want to back up everything that Lee said. Let's run a thought experiment together. 
I want you to imagine that, you know, it's almost the new year. So I want you to imagine that in 2023, I've picked this number at random. The the dollar value doesn't matter. But let's suppose that you have $100 to give to charitable causes in 2023. That's that's what you've uh, allotted. That's what you've budgeted. You've got 100 bucks. And suppose that your the cause that you is just near and dear to your heart is feeding hungry people. Um, you want to give to causes that that help hungry people get something to eat, which is man, that's awesome. Uh, that's really really good stuff. All of us have worked with people who are food insecure, and um, if you're wondering if that's something worth giving to, it super is. It's great stuff. Okay, here's the thing: there's way 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 more charities in the U.S. alone that are involved in feeding hungry people than you will be able to give to. Even if you said I'm going to break it up into a hundred one dollar donations. There would still be many, many, many charities yeah. that do really good work involving, you know, food insecurity that you would not be able to support. So, how do you decide? How how do you figure out who you're going to give money to? You've got to have some kind of criteria to figure out who does and who doesn't make the cut. And that, so far, this has nothing to do with forgiveness or not forgiveness or anything else. It's just there's more people that could receive these funds than I have funds, so I gotta I gotta choose somehow. Well, a person that did not kind of come up in evangelical Christian culture might ask a very interesting question, which is, shouldn't we prioritize organizations that haven't been marred by allegations of abuse and misconduct and waste and graft and corruption? Shouldn't we start with organizations that that don't have that history and don't have that reputation? because Otherwise, that's kind of weird, right? Like, if we've, if we've got to leave somebody out, maybe let's leave out the people where we're not 100% sure that they're doing a good job. And I think the funny thing is, most if you've grown up in evangelicalism the way that I did, you've probably never heard anyone ask that question before. Mm. But I think if you begin pondering it, it's going to resonate louder and louder in your head. And I think one of the questions that you might ask yourself Following up is if we don't figure out some sort of prioritization scheme and say maybe the people who have already crashed the plane in the mountain shouldn't be at the top of the list, then practically speaking, aren't we just prioritizing celebrity? Aren't we basically just saying the fact that I that this guy or this person is a, a media personality, aren't I just making that trump all other concerns um, in my decision making? And isn't that a very weird way to make decisions about how I do my charitable giving? Answer, yes, that is a, a deeply, deeply weird way to uh, do your charitable giving. Now, here's the interesting thing is we've been talking about this with money. The exact same thing applies to your time and your attention and your focus. You have uh, limited quantities of those things, too. You have limited quantities of time to give. You have limited quantities of attention to give. Again, if, if you didn't grow up around Christian stuff, you, you might ask, shouldn't I give my time and attention first to organizations or pastors or artists or creatives who don't have a documented history of abuse and corruption and graft and blah, 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 blah. One other thought that I would encourage you to think about, because th this is one that um, – that doesn't get acknowledged very often. Christians love celebrity. It's not just that they love individual celebrities. They do. They really love individual celebrities, but they love the idea of celebrity. Mm. They love the paradigm and the concept of celebrity. They love celebrity. And when a celebrity gets disgraced, it super bums them out because part of them wonders, kind of like we're talking about here, am I still allowed to enjoy this celebrity? Here's the thing. If we'll all agree together that we're giving that person a pass, I can go back to enjoying the celebrity, which is the thing that I really, really, really want to do. I don't care if it's responsible or not. I don't care if it's godly or not. I don't care if it's smart or not. I like this person's songs and I want to keep listening to them. Now you, question asker, you're a thorn in my brain driving me mad. Because if we could all agree together that worship leader McGee should get a free pass, I can go back to liking him. But since you are so troublesome and asking all of your questions like a jerk, you're getting in the way of my <laughs> guilt-free enjoyment of worship leader McGee. How dare you, sir?
Now let's pause for a second. That's not about forgiveness. That's about my aesthetic preferences and my convenience. There's nothing about uh, Jesus' call to forgive and love or anything. I just really like this guy's tunes. I don't want to feel bummed out when I listen to him. And you're bumming me out by attaching me to reality, you jerk. Look, that's not your problem, man. That's that's their problem. Um, people are free to continue consuming whatever media that they want. If their conscience is giving them trouble, which it is, that is not your problem to diffuse. Asking adult, mature, insightful questions about whether people uh, should be welcomed back into the limelight is an appropriate thing. And I think it's worth considering that a lot of the pushback that you get on that A, is fabricated by PR campaigns, but B, is coming from people that just want to go back to enjoying their celebrity because they really love celebrity and they don't want you bumming them out in the process. Absolutely right. I understand that 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 line was in the context of kind of Jed inhabiting the character, but I really like the idea of the Say That podcast, the only podcast with the uh, courage to say that you, the listener, are the problem and the thorn in our brain. (laughs) That's fantastic stuff from both of these guys. The one thing I'll add on the end is kind of exactly on the uh, the tip that Jed was mentioning there. The other thing where a lot of this PR spin, which is what all this is, like if you don't know a person who knows this person, this public figure personally, then the only interaction you're having with them is through a PR, a yep. business commerce lens. And that is all about maintaining power structure. In addition to what Jed, I think, very rightly pointed out, there is a even more kind of bare bones brass tacks. Hey, I don't I don't want to live in a world where people who are famous and make their money being public figures can screw something up and then they don't get to have that money anymore. I'm not looking to do that. I'm not looking to be part of that. Uh, Maybe I'm an agent. Maybe I'm a PR official. Maybe I'm a peer of this person. I like this setup. I don't want anything to actually kind of shake the foundations of that. That's where you get a lot of the kind of railing against cancel culture yep. is the idea of, well, if they can take down so-and-so comedian for being openly transphobic and doing a 30 minute transphobe brand instead of telling jokes, then what does that mean at your job when you go on openly bigoted rants? Well, nothing really. Cause those aren't, Similar things, but it is the idea of there should be an a position that is so protected by gender, race, money, fame, that it cannot be upended because that is the way I want kind of a social structure and a hierarchy to work. And the very bad news for that, if you also want to do the Christian thing, is Jesus is pretty clear about his feeling about social hierarchies and superstructures. Yep. And uh, it is, oh, the whole last will be first and one stone will not be left on top of another. So we as Christians should super not be precious about that stuff. Um, the other thing I'll add on the end of this, and it goes back to what Lee was saying, is you don't have to have an opinion on this. The other thing is you're allowed to have an opinion, whatever opinion you want, but specifically about um, whether or not people should have jobs where they're in positions of trust and power over people. If they've been abusive in that, there's nothing unforgiving or mean or whatever to say, no, I'm not, not casting you into outer darkness. I'm not saying you should never work again. I'm not saying you should have to wander the land in sackcloth and ashes. I'm just saying you shouldn't get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to be in charge of people. Right. Because we, you tried that and you did a real, real bad job. And most things we do a bad job at, here's the thing. You don't get to do that job anymore. That's the way the world works. Takes us back to the kind of the power installation there. So all great stuff from all these guys and a really awesome, insightful question. Move on to our next question. It comes in and says, what responsibility do I have to call out prejudice when I see it? If I see someone I know post something online or can I just block them or should I send a message to point out their error first? I feel like people are getting comfortable throwing stuff out there lately. Once again, from our audience, a very um, astute and depressing observation about the current state of the world. Um, And I think, again, this is, very similar to that first question, a really, a really interesting take on just some overall things that are implied, but not said often. Some come from not great places, but some also come from good places. There's an idea that, you know, if you're in your workplace or in your school and you see racism, you see prejudice, you see sexism, you should 
especially maybe even particularly if you are of a privileged type of person, a, a white male, you should not just stand idly by and let that happen. But that may be a little different than uh, the online stuff. And then there's a whole strain of really healthy ideas around boundaries and interpersonal relationships that you should express things. You should lay things out for people. You shouldn't just cut to an interaction, which is great in that context, but may not necessarily apply here either. So Lee, when we're thinking about this on its own terms, where do we start with the smart way to handle these type of things in their own unique circumstances? Uh, great setup. Really cool question. Again, like you're saying, Matt, just astute, just right with it. This is it's right in the kind of beehive of where so many people live in social media spaces. I think maybe the most important distinction or question for me in, in picking through this is to begin here, which is what is your relationship with this person? Uh, I think it completely depends on what kind of a relationship with you have that you have with this person. If you see somebody posting something that is prejudicial, that is, uh, that is racist, that is anti-Semitic, that is, uh, you know, hate speech or something like that, what, what kind of a relationship are we in with this person? Would you, in other words, would you and this person both agree that you have the place in their life where it makes sense for you to call things out, um, where you would say it and they would agree with it, that you have the place in their life where you hold them accountable on a regular basis. That makes sense that that exists in y'all's relationship. If not, um, I think a broader question is what would be the effectiveness of something like this? Um, we have all seen the, uh, you know, internet chat threads, tweet, threads just going off the rails of people just basically having fights. Nobody changes anybody's mind. Somebody, you know, somebody says something they regret. It doesn't do any good. All of that kind of stuff. I think a really good question. And, and, and part of, I think the, the really cool heart of where you're coming from and asking this is some of the, the things that have come out in the past few years of just, and not just the past few years, but for years and years and years in fights of, of, uh, you know, you know, social justice and civil rights and all kinds of things, just that, that silence is, is being complicit and you don't want to be in that space. Well, I think a really important question is what is an effective way to be an ally? This is a really important question that, and, and I want to say something that I think that a lot of people would ask this question more if if they were allowed to pair it with this next piece of information, which is you are allowed to not know the answer to that question off the top of your head. You're allowed to be a person who says, I don't really know what it would mean to be a, a good ally to certain groups who are, you know, certain groups who are uh, marginalized or mistreated. As Matt said, you, maybe you are in a in a privileged type of class and you don't know what some of these experiences are. Well, that's where it's it's okay that you don't know the answer to that. So we need to go into those spaces and find out what is an effective and good way for me in my role in my life to be an ally for your cause, for what you've been through, for what you're facing. Because if my only idea is I'm going to go on an internet you know, message board crusade, and I'm going to correct everybody that says anything untoward or anything awful, I think what you're going to find is it's not an, an especially effective way to be an ally, and it's, and it's not an especially effective way to change anybody's mind. It's, an, it's a very effective and, and efficient way to get into fights. Um, yep. And so those are the things that we want to do is it's totally okay to not know the answer to the question what is an effective way to be an ally right now for certain groups? That's totally fine. Um, what that means is I've got some work to do. I've, I, I need to forge some, uh, I need to build some relationships. I need to forge into some spaces. I need to ask some questions. I need to be a very good listener. And I need to figure out what it would mean for me to be an effective ally in some different spaces. If I'm not in a position of being kind of in a supervisory role or a pastoral role or a parental role over the person who's making out-of-pocket comments on the internet, 
it's probably not going to be very effective. It's not a very good idea, certainly, to go around correcting those. But I think a very good way to, to spend some of your energy is to go into some spaces, into some cultural situations and groups and with people that you don't know a lot about and start to ask a lot of questions and find out what does effective allyship look like and how can you be a person who is an effective and efficient ally. That's a wonderful place to start that off. And Jed, on that, I think that's a great place to pick up on that idea of kind of navigating some gray area, picking your battles. Where do we continue to develop that idea? Well, I think picking your battles is is really, really key. I I mean, um, the the truth is that if we think about calling out prejudice, and this could be prejudice of all kinds. Uh, It could be prejudice that's based on gender. It could be prejudice that's based on sexual identity. It could be prejudice that's based on one's ethnicity. Be prejudice based on age, prejudice based on income, prejudice based on religion or national origin. There, there are many, many, many kinds of prejudice in the world. Um, there is not a one-size-fits-all scenario to how to respond to prejudice when you are exposed to it. Uh, the specifics really super matter. And both extremes, I'm going to call out everything or I'm going to call out nothing those are both dysfunctional. Neither of those are a good way to live. Uh, neither of them constitute being a good ally. Um, you know, I think one of the things that, that happens in discussions of, of prejudice and what we do with it is that the loudest voices in the room are very often incorrect in the things that they are saying, uh, kind of no matter what they're saying. But to, to give you an example, right, like there are certain there are areas pretty broadly in the southern part of the United States where. Um, you're going to drive along and you're going to see people often in pickup trucks that are emblazoned with as many racist things as they can fit on one pickup truck. Um, uh, some of them in flag form, not all of them. It would not be a wise idea for you to try and run that truck off the road and confront them about their prejudices. You should not do that. No matter how fiery of a Twitter feed you have of people talking about how we're going to you know, not take it anymore. You you should not do that. If, if you can believe it, that's actually the fever dream of the person driving that truck. That, that, that is their ultimate fantasy that you would, would attempt to um, get them out of their sincerely held beliefs. On the other hand, I think oftentimes the, the prejudices over which you are likeliest to have the highest impact you have to pay the most attention to see them and notice them and speak up in a way that is effective. Let me give an example of what I mean. Suppose that you do a kind of work and are at a level where you have input into hiring decisions and you have candidates that are coming through. How often are candidates that are pretty well qualified just kind of said they're made not really a priority for no reason that we can particularly discern? Like we've got a pool of 10 candidates and a couple of, we're just not going to take that seriously. Let's, let's focus on these other three candidates and no one really bothers to ask why we're not going to take a real look at these over here or what the criteria would be. That is entrenched systemic prejudice, but you, if you're not paying attention, you wouldn't notice it. It is absolutely disenfranchising people. Um, because uh, we are judging things about them, but it doesn't look like a diesel hemi dually on the highway with a 19 foot Confederate flag and a gun rack. And so it's easy to not notice it. But the funny thing is, if you're in that meeting room, if you're in that boardroom, you, you do actually have the ability to do something about that. You have the ability to speak up. And Part of what's noteworthy is that if you speak up effectively, you don't even need to reference the idea of prejudice. Like if you just softly ask and you say, you know, these three resumes actually look pretty good to me. Is there is there a particular reason that we don't want to consider them? Because uh, they they seem like they'd be pretty qualified. Certainly, I'd be happy to do the initial round of interviews with them and and see if we can't uh, get them into the mix. I mean, they they seem like they could could really be a good fit. Here's the funny thing about that. You've confronted prejudice in that moment if you do that. Mm hmm. You haven't 
used the word prejudice. You haven't called anyone a racist. You haven't you, you haven't had a confrontation of any kind. You you've just made a mild suggestion. And that's the funny thing about a certain amount of effective allyship is you kind of have to know what you're looking at in order to spot the problem and understand what the solution would look like. And that really takes us back to Lee's really excellent question of what is an effective way to be an ally? And, and, and here's the thing that I want to encourage you to, to think about. In almost all fields of endeavor, people that are effective, it doesn't feel or look dramatic. Mm. We are super used because we, we live in a, in a country that's obsessed with the movies and with prestige drama. We're super used to thinking that the stuff that really matters feels really dramatic. Like I start to give this inspired speech and then a Hans Zimmer score swells underneath <laughs> me. And then I stand up and suddenly I'm also really ripped. And so it's like, and my voice is dropped like an octave. So it's like really powerful. And then like a jet flies overhead for no reason. That's not how anything effective ever happens. That army of trombones really zapped my racism. <laughs> exactly right. Like, most things that really lead to change, whether in, in one person's life or in an organization's life or a, a, a town's life or a state's life or, or, or a country's life, those things don't look like a lot while they're happening very, very often. A, a lot of really important change looks really underwhelming a lot of the time that it's getting going, which means you have to be invested in the process enough to understand what effective change looks like and how we would get it there. If you've got a heart to do that, you should get into it. But it is about searching for effectiveness as opposed to drama. I think those are both fantastic points from those guys. I, I'll attack one small thing on the end here that's going to sound almost like it's being contrarian, but it's really not. I'm just... If, adding another layer because these guys are talking about absolutely the right thing of being in a position in people's lives or in a position in your life where you can affect actual change, do helpful things to kind of combat the kind of rising tide of hate going on. That is the most important thing. That's the best place to put your efforts. There is a smaller, not effective necessarily in the sense of, as Lee said, you're not going to change someone's mind for the most part online. If you're, if you're just a friend with someone on Facebook or whatever, yeah, you're, you're probably not going to talk them out of their weird uh, prejudice idea. But normally there are other people from the outside watching to see when this person puts, I think, maybe this uh, former prominent rapper who's gone on some talk shows lately had some really good ideas about some stuff, actually, if you listen. Um, is it going to change the world if you uh, add a comment that says, hey, man, that's really not cool. Like that's no. And I'm probably going to, and either mention the poster, then also like click the unfriend button. Cause you don't need that. No, someone might see it and be like, Oh, at least this didn't just float out into the ether and everyone approved of it. And mm -hmm. that might be worth doing as Jed points out. It's not drama. You don't have to spend, you don't have to do a three page post on their thing and cite your sources and pull back why that's all insane. You have to do that. You can imagine kind of being if we were in an actual if you're in an actual physical environment with these people in a, a lunchroom or, you know, hanging out somewhere and somebody cracked the joke uh, that has a little bit of a twinge of racism or sexism or homophobia to it. Uh, certainly the three people on this show all grew up in the 90s and 2000s where there's a lot of that going around amongst the white men and Maybe even if you didn't agree with it, it was so kind of the tide that the thing to do was just kind of nervously go, ah, yeah, and hope that we would talk about something else. Um, that That's not great allying. And it's not uh, to be put it uh, on front street. That's not really good for your soul um, to just kind of go along with that stuff. Um, so it's a small act of rebellion. It's a very small thing to just be like, I don't. The, just the the kind of the broish way of it. Hey, man, that's not cool. You don't have to, you don't have to explode. As Jet say, you know, you don't have to make, it's not going to, it's not going to be a soaring speech. You can be like, oh, that's not, that's not cool. And move on with your life and they can move on with their lives to do whatever dumb crap they're going to do. But uh, a small victory, even if it's just for yourself and maybe a couple of people watching can be worth doing if that's kind of how you feel pulled to do it. But uh, absolutely back up what these guys said on all that stuff. We're going to move on here. You may have noticed that the end of the church gambling emergency. I did not declare emergency off. That's because here in the fourth segment of the show, we have a special bonus emergency. What? Oh, 
This was sent to us by several folks, uh, chief among them, Lee and I's friend Alan, who texted us a video of a Christmas church performance rehearsal, which involved people playing drums being suspended and floated over the audience. And you may have seen this by now. This is this is like a TikTok that went viral. This is Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas. They are getting ready for their flying drummers, live animals, and thousand-member cast Christmas extravaganza. The Ooh. cast has a thousand members? Apparently, according to a trusted name in Christian journalism about nonsense, Julie Roy's flying drummers, flying angels, live animals, and a thousand-person cast. They want an, none of that three wise men stuff. That's for poor people. We're going with a more accurate couple of dozen. Well, cool. So we've got Church du Soleil going on. That's that's <laughs> quite something. Yeah. Um, of all the things that are insane about this, the people online pointed out, um, it's always funny when a, a video of something that even though we acknowledge it's insane is just like, you know, people who are in the Christian sphere kind of know that mega churches do this nonsense. You know, Christmas is a big, a big money maker. They put on a big show da, da, da. to see people outside of that who just kind of have a vague idea that of churches as like places where people do Jesus stuff for them to just rise and want to go, wait, what the hell is this? Yeah. It's yeah. been super interesting. Um, of the many issues with it, my question is, there, somebody's gonna. There's like ten drummers suspended. Somebody's gonna drop a drumstick and knock Sister Beatrice in the eye, right? Like, <laughs> certainly seems like a possibility. I've never played drums, but the sticks are a bit slippery. You're suspended. Like, this is gonna be a a hard hat warning, I'd imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm part of a small church. We have a drum set here. And usually on a Sunday afternoon when, when the service is over, one of the little kids will come find their way behind the drum set, you know, and, and uh, start wailing on the drums to a varying degree of proficiency, depending on the kid kind of deal. And, you know, every now and then I've heard the really horrible little kid drummer that I'm like, yeah, we might want to put them up on some cables and say, if you're going to do it, you got to do it up here. But hey, like, yeah, there you go. But this is on a different level, fellas. This is like, and 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 there's some stuff that Matt left out of this too, of like gigantic jumbotron wall, like crazy amounts of of light effects and everything. The the amount of money that is being spent to suspend the drummers. On Christmas worship, I just don't understand any any part of it, any part of this waste, any part of the idea, what's going on behind it, why are there drummers floating, is that something I missed from the original Christmas story? <laughs> it is a bit like, to take it back to the gambling analogy, it is a bit like a Vegas show, just without any of the polish or artistry or interestingness of a Vegas show. It's just, yeah. we knew we needed to spend a lot of money and yeah. put people in a dangerous situation. Because one thing we know about the church is it loves seeming expensive, but it also loves cutting corners. Yeah. And what are the odds that a guy who just goes to the church was the one doing the rigging to get the drummers attached to their kind of flying modules there? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So we spent all the money on lighting. We didn't bring in a professional guy, but uh Rodney over here does tree work and that's yeah. got knots involved in it, so we're just gonna let him do it. I love the <laughs> idea of one of them at just going off Matt's idea, one of the guys is is not as secure as the others. So everybody's <laughs> in awe, like the full light show is happening, Jumbotron, everybody's, you know. They're they're all doing some military cadence to hark the herald angels sing twenty five feet into the air, and then one guy 
just falls completely down on some brand new family that's visiting the church for the first time. Yeah. Make way for Willie. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to share a couple of details from the, the Julie Roy's write up of this. One of which is um, that the Southern Baptist megachurch in Plano, Texas, pastored by Jack Graham. Jack Graham is also the founder of something called PowerPoint Ministries, which is a choice to name your ministry after something that everyone hates. Yeah. Like it's a different kind of being a freak, but it's far worse to say, you know, what really makes an impact that I think excites people PowerPoint. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to do some copyright infringement and name my thing after that. So that's bad. Yeah. Um, you will also not be shocked to know that they, the people at this church, the staff particularly have immediately gone into, we are the victims and everyone's being mean to us mode. Sure. Yes. Uh, Prestonwood executive pastor, Mike Buster, which I refuse to believe is a real na- person's real name. That sounds like an arrested development side character. Yeah. <laughs> said in a statement that the church expects about 75,000 people to attend their Christmas pageant at Prestonwood. We believe Jesus deserves our absolute best, especially at Christmas. Cool. 75,000 people. He also said about the backlash and the online criticism. It's unfortunate that the perennial American tradition of the church Christmas program now draws hateful ire from some. We pray that they, too, may come to know the joy of Christmas and the love of our Savior. Yeah, dude, just one thought, one one thing that might be worth looking at. So, like, immediately north of the town that Matt and I live in, there's this other town called River Forest. And uh, it's uh, very wealthy, to put it mildly, and has been for a very long time. Like uh, back in the day, like literal mobsters lived there and whatnot. Like so it's a lot. Most of it is mansions and it's it's really super, super swanky. And there's this one dude who's been doing it for years. Um, And he transforms his whole front yard into a Christmas wonderland. Like it is it is light a palooza, man. There's stuff that's roboticized that moves around. I mean, it is it is like they work on it for months, dude. And Hallie and I go basically every year because it's just it's impressive. It's really cool. But it's it's free for anybody who wants to come by and just kind of stare at it and whatnot. We actually met the dude's son one day who's coming home. He's like, Oh yeah, my old man just loves it and makes him happy and whatnot. But here's the thing is this is a crazy rich dude just doing crazy rich dude stuff. And like he's already got a mansion in a really nice place, and like, like easily he's spending like fifty thousand dollars to put this on every year. I mean, it's it's wow. that level of thing. But like, dude, if you got that kind of coin and you want to do it, that's great. Here's the difference between that and a church: you are a nonprofit organization that's supposed to be devoted to the public good. What? You are not a for-profit entertainment company. How have you not grasped this? What about this is devoted to the public good? Well, let me offer this, Jed, when this uh, the description. A press release from the church, which reportedly has over 50,000 members, described the show as, quote, a visually stunning multimedia event. In addition to flying acts and expansive cast, the show also reportedly features special effects, an LED video wall, and a 50-piece orchestra playing, wait for this part, an original music score. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Ticket co- tickets cost $19 to $59, and you're never going to guess the next sentence of this if I gave you a million tries, so I'll just Hit share me. it, with an optional Christmas buffet available for an additional $22.50. <laughs> Golden wow. Corral will be there, folks. That wow. brings us back to... <laughs> Church being Vegas. Yeah. Complete with a buffet, but at least in Vegas, the buffet is free. Incredible. $22.50 for your Christmas buffet, which mashed potatoes might have the sweat of a 19-year-old session drummer who's been flown over your head during the service in it. (laughs) Wow. And on that, when all Jed has left to say is wow, that's the moment where we know it's time to declare emergency off. And episode as well. If you have a question for us, you can find us at say that podcast at gmail.com or the bridgechicago.tumble.com slash ask. You want to keep that entirely anonymous. We are in the Christmas season. And being that we don't have the resources to ship an LED video wall 
and warmed over buffet tray to each and every one of you. You'll have to settle for the festivities of some Christmas music. This is Lee's version of I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. We'll take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it.